tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. In the field of sports performance, one particular subject gets a lot of attention. As a coach, when your athlete is in pain, alarms start going off and the tendency is to react with the proportionate DEFCON 1 response. But is that really appropriate? This week, pain researcher Dr. Adrian Lowe provides some fascinating feedback on the origin of pain and how to manage its effects on performance. Some of the knowledge gained through testing people through placebo surgeries, looking at individual pain history, and understanding the relationship between fear and pain will absolutely blow your mind. The takeaway, you can manage your response to pain and conquer it, oftentimes with the simplest of steps. What are those steps? Well, to find out, you'll have to tune in. This is episode 251. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? It is that time again for another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. Callie, who our, po- our podcast producer, reached out to me text, oh, and no. she made one request. We she dropped said, the echo? No. Well, among she made a number of requests. But she said, you know what? Just stop talking about the weather in Texas. And I'm going to, because if I were to talk about it today, well, it's, it's not warming worth, up. Yeah, it's not worth talking about the weather today because it's no longer cold. And, <laughs> you know, it's quite comfortable. I'm really not mad at this. And it, no. if it stays this way into the in throughout the spring, I'll be a very happy Texan. Yeah, and we won't bring it up for Cali. Maybe I'll text her and just remind her what the weather is each day. But ladies and gentlemen, we have a killer show for you today. I guess you could say it's brought to you by Power Athlete Academy. Hey, listen, people, if you've been listening to this podcast and you don't know that we're in the business of education and blowing minds and give you unfiltered, uncut information. And memes. And memes. I guess we're primarily a meme company that also educates, right? Then I'll tell you what. You're missing out. So what we've been pushing out on the Academy recently are a recap of our 2017 Power Athlete Symposium, a three-day speaker event that raised awareness for neuroblastoma, but also blew, literally blew minds. I mean, there was a cleanup crew. It was biohazard, hazmat. But to date, we have, let me think, Woodski is out there, Derek Woodski. We have Adam Nelson, Lindsey Matthews, and what we're calling our practical pack, which is yours truly, Christopher McQuilkin, putting on a warm-up clinic. Literally. Literally. Then you have uh, Master Splinter, Raf Ruiz, doing his thing and just sh- shifting the perspective of, of why we train, the importance of training, and the goal. If you're not creating habits, you're not training as a coach, right? And then, of course, Miss Ingrid Markham, who just blows people away with hip foot, hip, just structural integrity and how to diagnose and train with some very simple skills and drills. I mean, it is truly a takeaway for any coach or athlete or individual who's training and wants to be bulletproof. Um, and you could argue that that performance pack is directly connected to our guests today because we're talking about athlete long-term development, daily development, and assessment tools for a coach to identify what's going on in our athlete's body that training day. Boom. So, people, if you want to just have your mind blown, here's some amazing speakers. PAHQ.co slash PA-Academy. And that's how it goes. So, check it out. Peek at it. Let us know. If you think we're wrong on something, do it. Tell us. I dare you. Email Cali, C-A-L-I, at powerhq.com with all complaints. 
But enough about us. Let's dive into our special guest. All right, people. We have Adrian Lowe. Adrian is one smart dude. He's the founder and CEO of the ISPI, which is the International Spine and Pain Institute. And spoiler alert, people, we are going to be talking about pain today. And I guess its effects, where it comes from, its origins, facts, fiction, fallacies, the BS, and, and a lot more, right? So, Adrian, pleasure having you on here. Thank you so much for jumping on and, and schooling us up. Um, I've just given the high level of where you are now. Tell us how you got here. Where are you from? Uh, what are your passions? Were you an athlete? Were you not? Where'd you study? All the good stuff. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I'm um, easy way to start is I'm a physical therapist. Um, got a funny accent. I'm from South Africa. Came to the United States, and um, basically my world is in the world of neuroscience. So we scan people's brains. We can tell you what you're thinking on a good day, right? Um, luckily, we cannot yet. But um, I, I grew <laughs> up in the whole world of sports medicine. I mean, I, I, I work with athletes, high-level athletes, um, performance centers. But my last part of my career, the last probably 10 years, have moved me towards the brain and pain science and you know um, things related to how the brain works, pain, sports performance, um, movement for that matter. And so um, I work in clinical practice. I teach at a number of different universities. Um, I'm head of a big research consortium that studies neuroscience, um, specific to movement and pain for that matter. And um, that's probably the easiest way to put it. Um, I'm, our team works in pain. And then who's your, like, who are you working with? Anyone that hurts? Yeah, I mean, well, anything. I mean, we work from people that have not experienced pain. I mean, we're talking about preemptive um, pain education stuff, um, school kids, athletes, um, people before surgery. We we're talking about people with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, we teach anywhere from, you know, physical therapists to medical doctors to you name it. I mean, um, from education to teaching to educate to, to research, um, our field is massive because pain is a global um, issue for that matter. It's, it's a human experience. Um, experience for that matter. I mean, it's fascinating too. I mean, I, I, a lot of the folks that we, that are listening to this podcast, you know, they're, it's a mixture of folks who train. Most everybody trains, you know, barbell, sprint, power, power athlete style training. Uh, and some are coaches who have had the opportunity to, to take somebody into a place where they're, they're afraid of the pain that hasn't even occurred yet or something that they've seen on a video and they're like man they can feel that pain before it even happens which you know it is it it's wound up in the old in the old noggin as an experience that that you can anticipate without even feeling right and absolutely I, so so i guess where do you want to start with this text well i i have listened to a couple of your your lectures online and i think you describe pain beautifully so whether it's the alarm system uh, that you discussed on a couple couple of notes here. I'd love for you to paint the picture of pain because growing up playing football, especially down in Texas, you know, water was weakness. So pain was even something that we are not allowed to talk yeah. about. We had to yeah. commit, had to play. So how do we reframe this idea of pain for our coaches, our athletes, and our parents out there? Before you get going, Adrian, I think it'd be more interesting for, uh, you know, let us preempt the expert and give our definitions of pain. So, Tex, what does pain mean to you? I wish you prepared me for this. <laughs> but uh, think about it. First response. It's like an acute, I think of acute trauma, like, bam, nailed my shin, stubbed my toe. Ow, that hurts. 
But I, I guess as an athlete, thinking back to my athletic career, pain would a, a distraction from the purpose and the goal. Oh, God. Damn. Right. Reading the reading the defense, reading the defense, performing, executing. Yeah. But now as an athlete, if I feel pain in training, it means I'm not moving properly. Does it, though? That's you asked me my yeah, interpretation. I guess you're right. My would opinion, be, man. I'm just I'm I guess pr- I have a newfound perspective because obviously we've dug into a little bit of Adrian's work and it's like, does it really? But Adrian, okay, so that's our quick answer. Ours. I, mean, I just gave mine and you're, you don't have one. I told you, I, I, when I think of pain, I think of acute injury or like stub a toe, busting, busted shin. Sure. Okay. Training, training with pain, chronic pain or discomfort, right? Well, yeah, I don't agree with that. <laughs> um, remember, injury and pain is two different things. Sure. I mean, you can have an injury and no pain. I mean, how many of us have noticed blood in our body and have no idea where it came from? Mm-hmm. Um, we go and get a cup of coffee in the morning. We notice a bruise in our leg. Um, you can have an injury and no pain. But the interesting thing is you cannot have pain and not know about it. Um, we understand pain is a, it's a conscious decision by your brain to protect you. And um, this idea of pain being tied to injury, 30% of people that experience pain have never had an injury. I mean, coming back to your comment, one of the famous quotes, you know, 1993 Journal of Pain, the fear of pain is worse than pain itself. I mean, any trainer, any therapist, any doctor listening, you know, the guy hasn't even started moving his knee yet. Then you walk in the room and he's already, you know, nervous, anxious, whatever. We, If we scan that brain, that brain has the same mapping as if you're bending their knee and hurting them. You need to understand that the anticipation of pain is also pain. Um, so, so coming back to your question, you know, what is pain? That's a great question. But the current thought process behind pain is that pain is a protection produced by your brain in lieu of threat. And the question you should really ask me today is what is a threat? And that's the answer. Because what's threatening to you and me is different. An athlete, I would argue, has different threats. Um, You know, making the team, being cut is a significant threat, which, you know, Sally with a knee replacement, that's not a threat. Um, So it's very intriguing how the brain works because, again, if somebody comes to us and they have had pain, there's never been an injury, you say, how do you you even contemplate that? Well, threats come in a variety of different things. Threats threats come in terms of your um, emotional well-being. Um, Threats come in terms of tissue health, right? You hurt yourself, you see your tibia sticking out of your leg. Well, that's a serious threat, right? Yeah. So threats come in a variety of things. Come on, you guys sitting here, Kevin Ware, right? Five years ago, whatever, broke his leg on national TV. What was the first words out of his mouth? It wasn't, I hurt. It was, win the game. When Mm -hmm. did he feel pain? 31 seconds later when the coach puked. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so again, injury and pain is, is drastically different. And so to come back to your question, you know, pain is a protection by the brain, which, which, by the way, means you cannot have pain and not know about it. It's a conscious decision. Now, your question is going to be, what is consciousness? And I'm going to tell you there are people 18 levels above my pay scale that doesn't know that. We don't know what consciousness is. But what's intriguing is if you talk about pain, say, for instance, in athletes, now we can say, okay, if pain is from consciousness, how do we alter consciousness? And now you can talk about, you know, the zone being trained in medical um, realms. We talk about obviously analgesics, et cetera, but we also talk about hypnosis. Um, If we alter your consciousness, your awareness, could we argue that an athlete that's quote unquote in the zone is so zoned in that he or she can alter their consciousness, which means when they get information from their tissues, they can actually, for a lack of a better term, downregulate and not experience pain 
during a performance? Um, I would argue 100% yes if you look at the current data. So that's probably where we're at with the definition. So if pain is a warning mechanism, and maybe that I'm saying it wrong, but is, is the brain ever wrong? Yes, all the time. Huh. Here's a good example. I mean, vision, right? Vision is a construct of the brain. Your eyes, you don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain. Your eyes bring light in, and then we flip it upside down in the back of our brain and we create vision. That's why half of this country has seen Bigfoot, the other half hasn't seen him, <laughs> right? Because when you have two shadows at the same time at the same place, based on your experience, you're like, that's Bigfoot. And I look, I look at the same thing, and I'm like, what the hell are you smoking? It doesn't make sense, right? Hearing, you hear with your brain. Our ears contain vibration receptors. But our brain can make this, uh, mistakes, no doubt about it. Um, you know, the interesting thing is I was actually at a big sports medicine conference, and we talked about vision and vision acuity. You only see little pieces during the day, and your brain builds vision around it. What makes the most sense to it? And, yeah, I mean, come on. Any, any of your trainers or, or healthcare professionals listening right now, when patients come in and they tell you their story, you're like, that doesn't make sense. How can that hurt? And the answer is it can. Because the brain takes what it has available and builds the most logical outcome. And um, that's the tricky part. What, what's, what's a threat to me? What's a threat to you? Um, so the brain can make mistakes. And we can influence it, by the way, yeah, so by that's what, what we say. That's what I was yep. kind of getting into next. Well, so what are some examples? You know, you gave an example of Bigfoot, which Texas big Bigfoot guy, <laughs> big Bigfoot believer. Uh, oh, yeah. Spent a, a few weeks up in Seattle searching for Bigfoot with Ka our producer, Callie, actually, right? You know, yeah, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what would an example of like a, a mixed signal or a false positive of pain be? So, I mean, a classic example would be, you know, we, we often talk about the technical term called allodynia, and that's when you get pain from things that shouldn't hurt. You know, the person that comes in the clinic and says, the, the, shirt, the shirt touching my arm hurts. That doesn't make sense, right? But actually in the biomedical, in the neuroscience world, it does make sense. Here is a noxious stimulus that has been misinterpreted by the central nervous system and the brain where it produces a threat. So many things have happened to you and there's been so many changes in your nervous system and brain and spinal cord that no susceptive information, normal healthy information, light touch, the shirt is touching me, is now misinterpreted as a threat. And by the way, what makes this happen is a series of events. Let's talk about doctor's visits, therapist visits, um, fear about losing my spot. So many things shift threat level up. And when the brain is convinced there's a threat, it'll produce pain. In this case, because the shirt, not because me pushing really hard in your arm or you're exerting yourself. Um, and that happens all the time. And, it's not, and by the way, it's not a mistake. It is normal for the brain at this point, based on everything they've gone through to make this decision. All right. So then how do we influence that? Oh, easy. It's everything we do. Yeah. Um, you know, the fancy term nowadays is called therapeutic alliance. It's how we do what we do. You know, um, in, in a, it's the coach that is not only the suck it up, drink testosterone for breakfast, but have the listening ear of, hey, listen, I believe in you. You can do this. I, I, I have faith in you. I know it sounds silly, but the brain literally, if you think about the brain as a threat meter for that matter, it measures threat. 
and there's a threshold. The minute you go over, the brain produces pain. Well, I hate to say it, and, and I know it's co- almost counterintuitive in the sports medicine world, but it's the coach that listens. It's the guy that, hey, listen, I believe in you. Because you alter threat. That athlete comes to your gym, works his tail off, but he's still struggling. But I said, it's that encouragement of, hey, you can do it. I know you can do it. And listen, I've spoken to the coach today, and he said, as soon as you're ready, there's a spot for you on the team. It's these little things that the brain is appraising your current well-being, if you will. And we can alter it with other things. You know, uh, um, when we put ice on a, on, a, on an injured area, we slow C5 gravity down. You put a TENS unit on electrical stimulation. It's seeing the cup as half full. Um, it's all those things that slowly, it's your personality. It is interaction with the medical personnel. Um, you know, we have the most horrible language in sports medicine, torn, ripped, rupture, bulge, herniate. You know, and then a patient goes home. Hey, what did they find? Well, I don't know, but the therapist said the rapture's coming. <laughs> you know, um, we, we hear these words, and I hate to tell you, but it scares the living hell out of people. Now, most of my athletes, they're okay. They suck it up. They deal with it. Not a big deal. But I, 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 I'm probably going to make your whole audience very upset by making this statement. But I was in Stockholm recently, and some of the smartest pain people were there. And the theme came out that athletes are normal people participating in sports. Which for me was intriguing because I've been in the world of high-level Olympic athletes. But you need to understand on the on this on the neuroscience side, they do not have any difference than me and you and your mom and your grandma. Now on the psychosocial aspects, suck it up, coping skills, day and night. I mean that's one of the cool things, right? We know, for example, that kids that play contact sport early in life are way less likely to develop chronic pain later in life. Because they learn pain in socially acceptable, friendly environments. It's Everybody has a bruise on the football team. That means you belong. So there's so many social aspects. But remember, uh, I'm not even know what the hell your question was. But, I love um, it. No, just keep going. It, it, it's just your brain takes this information and makes meaning out of it. And like you said, sometimes it's wrong. Hopefully it's right most of the times. But it makes this decision and says, you know what? I'm going to be okay. And the threat meter goes down. Or the brain goes oh, hell, I'm in trouble, and it produces pain to protect you until you can figure out what's going on. So you and I, we walk in and we tell we, – and I don't want the trainers to think because the last thing you need is a trainer to walk in and, you know, you know, how you doing? How's your life? You know, there's obviously that tough love part, which is sure. a beautiful balance. Um, but understanding that um, – yeah, it's, it's, it's very intriguing in the athletic population. But, you know, the funny thing is that I've noticed in athletes is, yeah, they can suck it up, deal with it, three sets of 50, pain is weakness, leaving the body. I got that. But have you ever noticed sometimes an athlete, they do this, but then they, there's a turning point. There's kind of that sweet spot. The minute they catastrophize, then they go down that hill. That's it. Life's over. I'll never make the team again. And we got to be very, very careful with that. So we, we do see a lot of those athletes. I don't know, Luke, in your experience, the guys that got beat in the sprint. We see it still on NFL Sundays. All of a sudden, you know, they, they develop a limp. <laughs> and then the next play, what? they can go 100 miles an hour. Are you hour. talking about anyone in this room right now, Tex? No, not at all. I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking of some, some old teammates and then just some, some NFL examples of guys getting mm-hmm. burned. And so let me tell you, legitimately, I kind of am that guy. This is a fo- this is a confession. I tried to save you. This is a confession. But first off, it's not in a sprint because I'm always legging out. Because you're not fr- sprinting. No, that's, there's truth <laughs> to that, too. They're both true, Tex. Neither is wrong. Um, but when I was in this bowling league, when I was in high school, I swear to you, when I would roll, you know, you roll a perfect ball, and it's going to be a strike. 
no, no problem. And like, I, I banged up a shoulder, like maybe separated it. I don't know. Never really, you know, you'd go to ATC, I guess high school kid played football contact. Uh, can you still play? Yeah. Pay, play through the pain, I guess. But uh, it affected my bowling game. Now, whenever I would fucking gutter ball, I would feel as if my shoulder pain were yep. a contributor to that, right? Which I don't gutter ball anymore, Tex, if you want to go to high five and let me show you how to bowl. Well, that's because you use bumpers. <laughs> but, like, so, so, but so it, I guess, was your, is, is ego, it, does ego factor in? Like, it, uh, on our slides here that you passed along, elite performance synergy, it starts and ends with the brain. Does, how yeah, much so, does ego get in the way? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a piece of it, isn't it? Um, which kind of probably brings us into the question, what is ego? And is it, you know, um, but what we have done is we have looked at the brains of very high performing athletes versus your weekend warrior, you know, Billy Bob um, golfing with his buddies. Right. And it's completely different. And the cool thing about this is um, what we have found out the, the advanced um athlete, the, the high-level athlete's brain is more synergy. It actually runs like a well-oiled machine. The critical thing, as an example, just to give you, is that in high-level people, the emotional areas of the brain actually quiets way down. So here's the question, right? It's, it's the masters. It's Sunday afternoon. It's a half a foot putt, and the whole world's watching. What does a guy do? He misses it. How in the hell do you miss that? Well, the funny thing is what we have found out is when your emotions get involved, you start putting like the guy on the weekend in the beer league because what happens, the professional athlete can actually calm their brain to focus on the task at hand. The minute the emotional area gets involved, um, it, it drastically influences sports performance. And I would argue that anything that, that takes you away from that synergy we know that will happen. So in, in pain, for example, an athlete that deals with pain, we now know the whole brain gets involved during a pain experience. And so areas that should be helping us do with this coordinated activity is in a pain meeting, if you will. And so ego, those things I would argue, well, I don't ego would be an interesting one, but anything that distracts you has to influence that synergy, no doubt about it. Now, just kind of thinking with, with movement, with synergy, say I – brace up my ankles or I wear a knee brace, how does this affect movement or pain? Say I, I, I uh, rolled my ankle, right? It hurts, but then we tape it up. How much does my movement change returning to the field or the court? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So here's an easy thing. If you take two fingers real quick and you wiggle them forward and back, your index and middle finger, right? And I take athletic tape and I tape your two fingers together. How long does that tape have to be on those two fingers before only one finger is in your brain, in the mapping of your brain? It takes 15 minutes. If you take two fingers, wiggle them forward and back, there's an area in our brain, the primary somatosensory cortex, that contains a mini you, a mini me in my, in my brain. So, for example, if I ask one of you guys to close your eyes real quick, take your index finger and touch your nose. None of you guys stuck your thumb in your ear right now, right? How do you know that's your index finger when I took vision away? You have a map in your brain called the primary somatosensory cortex, or we call it the homunculus. Now, that map is 100% kept dynamic through movement. When we move body parts, the map is very crisp and sharp. So if I ask you, show me your index finger, you show me index finger. Well, if you don't move much or there's less than optimal movement, the map actually becomes blurred, or we call it smudging in neuroscience. And smudging is very strongly correlated to the development of pain. So we gotta be very careful immobilizing or strapping for prolonged periods of time. 
Now, taping up an ankle for a game, get done, take it off, that's fine. But there, there are consequences, and there's pain consequences. When the brain struggles to find body parts, you know, two fingers are moving now, we tape them together, the map gets blurred. And I know it sounds really weird, but the brain struggles. What the hell's going on down there? It'll produce pain in your hand until it can figure out what's going on. So you can produce pain with no injury due to immobilization, as an example. And we see this in post-operative environments in more, you know, severe cases. But I would argue an athlete that week after week, day after day gets taped and taped and taped for long periods. Um, we have done preliminary research. They have problems with something called laterality, figuring out left and right of their body. And this actually predicts sports performance and pain. So it's even more complicated. The brain thinks in terms of threat is is the injury. Um, how's my emotional well-being? Is my body map sharp? Now, the flip side is I would argue athletes, by virtue of repetition and repetition and repetition, develop very critical sharp mapping, which means they know what's going on in their hand, their foot. They can, it's almost that almost automatic activity they're doing. And, um, but it can. It can definitely – taping and stuff like that can definitely do it. Yeah, that's a big mistake I, I made. I broke my leg my freshman year and then for four more years just taped my ankles every single day in game. And now, a, you know, decade later, I'm paying for it. And, uh, yeah, definitely affects my athleticism. You that's my excuse. that map up. I'm trying to. So uh, let's, uh, let's continue. The lit, uh, in our, our slides here, you have limits on the nervous system. So a big part of training is always weights, numbers, percentages, speed, sprint, yep. and all this. But where do we begin? Is it with the nervous system? And are we doing our due diligence or our proper job by hitting the weights? Are we skipping this this basic concept? No, I, th I think the concept, if, if we look at it, what I was trying to get to is the idea that there is an optimal improvement. There's an optimal arousal level. I mean, all of us know the athlete that is not aroused enough underperforms, right? The athlete that is over aroused cannot perform well. Um, it's followed the yerkes dotson law. It's kind of that there's an optimal. Well, what we have looked at the brain, the brain also has an optimum. You know, the idea, I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm an old guy, but in the old days, it was more is better. If 10 is good, 100 is better, and 1,000 is even better. Um, but what the scientists have now shown us, especially when it comes to the neuroscience, is there is an optimal. And if you burn the candle on both ends, actually what happens is sports performance suffers from the neuroscience perspective. For example, Stanford University has done some amazing studies on their swimmers uh, um, as well as some of their um, basketball players. And what they did is they improved their sleep. And they showed a direct correlation. The more they sleep, the better they perform. Faster reaction times of the blocks, better shooting percentages. So in, in, in the world of the brain, the brain needs all kinds of oxygen, glucose, et cetera, to function at optimal level. Um, for example, we know MIT did a study that shows us what, you know, there's a study, it's literally called What Do Rats Dream Of? They dream about running in wheels at night. You, your motor patterns lay down when you go into phase four sleep, REM sleep. And so we would argue the athlete that cut that burns the, the candle at both ends may actually be cutting themselves short. Um, you know, I, for one example, I mean, I'm very intrigued in the Olympic marathon runners as an example. I read a lot about this stuff. But most of these guys, when they get up, they, they, they go for their morning run. They come back, they do yoga, they stretch, but then they take a nap and they sleep. There's a, there's a balance between very high level activity plus getting your body and the brain some time to rest as well. 
And we had we had one of the lead researchers for that that Stanford sleep study, Sherry yeah. Ma, on yep. uh, episode two seven two zero seven. If y'all want to check back, she's now doing amazing things for the NBA and Golden State Warriors. And she said that exact thing. Like we, yes, every time we step into the gym or practice, we get worse. And the most you know essential thing was sleep to again go to that that mapping that pattern to improve our skill. And in that high level of competition, right? It's all about skill, I guess, for marathon runners. Yeah, I, I would just make sure, I mean, I don't want anybody to think you're, I'm going to go lay on the couch like Homer Simpson for the rest of my life and become the next Olympic athlete. I mean, I think we're all smart enough to know that there's a balance, right? You've got to work your ass off. You've got to do the best you can. But it's, I, I find there's that subgroup that thinks more is better to the point to where it starts hurting them. And that is where your, your coach, your trainer, your advisor is the guy that – I mean I remember, sorry, but way back running cross-country in school, you know, the coach always told us – I don't even know if this is appropriate for a, for a podcast or something, but you know, check your pee. I mean if the yellow it gets, you've you got to worry. you got to worry about how much you're drinking, how mm-hmm. much you're sleeping. You know, monitor your body, and that is where we as healthcare providers, the trainers, the coaches are going to be that person say, hey, listen, I've been watching you. You know, we want to back off, et cetera, because there isn't – there is that optimal level. No doubt about it. But if you're looking, I mean, the journey to find that, you're going to ride the rails a little bit, right? You just got to oh, yeah. have, you got to be smart enough or have someone smart enough there to, to educate you on the warning signs so that, yes. you know, and then, you know, and I guess that those rails are that those boundaries probably change over time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, I guess, you know, some going back to the, that elite apex athlete, they're just the, the individual who maybe understands those signals, can identify those signals sooner, quicker, more clearly uh, versus somebody who might push it too far or, like you said, not, I guess, be governed and held back to not push it enough. And how important is pain inoculation? Like I'm thinking of, of MMA fighters or NFL players, right? They've been in the, the combat game. They've been taking the hits. The hits have been increasing in, I guess, magnitude, as they increase in their skill, yeah. From but say, if they fifteen years old, uh, yeah, if they jumped from and started when they were twenty-one versus when they were fifteen, they're missing a whole six years of inoculation. Is this? Is there any science to back that up? Is that what you found? That, that is a great question, and I don't know. You know, I there's an area that I think we have no answers to because we have never really tracked the chronicity of pain in say ex NFL players. I mean, we're all worried about concussions and long-term effect, but I mean, anecdotally, just having been around some of these NFL players, I mean, a lot of them struggle with chronic pain later on, on multiple levels, which makes sense. I mean, you, you know, they take their pads off. You see, it's just, they're bruised beyond belief. Um, I, I would, you know, I think it can inoculate to a point. Um, but I, you, I mean, I cannot make you so smart and understanding pain that tomorrow when you have a femur fracture, you're going to go, I'm good, and you're going to go run a 10-mile <laughs> run, right? Yeah. There is a limitation, but um, we're going to be very careful because – uh, you know, the more we do this pain stuff, the more people think, oh, it's all in your, it's your, it's your brain, it's 100%. But the tissues, I mean, it, it, it adds up. And at some point, you, I mean, and that's where the balance comes in. Um, that's a great question. And I honestly, I wish I could do a pain study on ex NFL players on chronic pain. It's a little trickier than that, but um, we don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer for you in that one. So, how about getting kids started with the barbell i guess working i've worked with high schoolers in the past and one of the challenges 
is kind of pushing them through, kind of coaching them up the barbell on their back for the first time. Mm-hmm. It maybe they don't have the the meat shelf, so it's resting on their their bones, right? We haven't had the opportunity to build the muscle to rest the barbell. So yeah. how do, how what's an effective way to communicating a pain don't hurt? I don't know to yeah. get started with the weightlifting. Yeah, and so and that's a great question because I think we have mantras that can be very helpful or not very helpful. You know, the classic mantra is no pain, no gain, right? Suck it up, whatever. That works to a degree. So unfortunately, in my clinical world, if a lady walks in tomorrow with total body pain, she's a housewife that cannot raise her family, and I say, suck it up, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body, that's not going to work. The neuroscience for us is basically the idea that um, you're sore but safe. Um, Hurt doesn't equal harm. Um, there's a scale we use often with these kinds of active people called the pain acknowledgement scale. What is it? What it really means is it's okay that you have pain because the, the flip side is um, if it hurts, don't do it. And can you see we now have a switch? It's on or off, and that's not good. Pain that is understood is not to be feared. And fear drives pain better than anything we've ever measured, by the way. So to tell a young kid, hey, listen, you're going to come to rehab. We're going to work on your knee, and it's going to be uncomfortable. But as long as it's you know this up lower level, we're okay with it. Feeling it when you're done, it's normal. It's part of the process. You know, my daughter saw a track this week, comes back, legs are sore. Well, guess what? It's the beginning of the season. It's going to be sore. You know, delayed onset muscle soreness as a great example. It's a good thing you're working out. On the flip side, yeah, there's some consequence, but it's safe. It's about safety. And as long as you're safe, you're fine. Um, and I think that's a critical part. You know, if a kid puts a barbell on them and they feel it, understanding that, hey, you feel it, you're getting used to it, you're just a little sensitive. As you work, it gets better. You just coach that kid through it. The brain basically went, hey, I'm going to be okay. The guy with a funny accent explained it to me. We're going to be all right. <laughs> right? And that's what it does. And so it's about appraising these things. Um, but getting away from her, um, no pay, no gain, because that has a limitation to some point. Now, for a kid that want to get back on the football field from an ACL injury, no pay, no gain, yeah, you got to suck it up a little bit if you want to get back on the field. But there is that flip side of no pay, no gain, and then the other side, if it hurts, don't do it. It's, it has to be somewhere in the middle. And that's why they talk about the pain acknowledgement scale. It's okay to have some pain, and especially – Doing it, get done, it wins, it, it wears off, we're good, repeat, repeat. But I like the idea that pain that is understood is not to be feared. And that's a critical part of the coach, the trainer, the um, that can talk them through it. It's okay, you will feel it, that's normal, everybody does, you're going to be okay, and work the way through this. Yeah, and I think, like you know, we've been through it so we can relate. But let's just pretend oh, I heard the, this barbell hurts my back. Well, no shit. It's a it's a metal bar on your back with 100 pounds on it. You've never done this before. But if the same pain is presenting itself six weeks into the program and it's it's an overwhelming pain, then I think, well, that shit in ordinary, right? We got it. Well, what could that be? Then you fucking you call up Adrian. You say, hey, man, I got this kid. What's the deal? So what could something like that be where? Uh, you know, there is this understood pain that we learn to accept and eventually just becomes part of the gig. But for some folks, and I've never ran into it, but does it exist? I mean, is there a case where an individual never gets over? Absolutely. 
I mean, think about it, right? Let, let's say you, you bring 10 kids in your, in, your, in your gym today and all of them are lifting weights, same barbells, same everything. They're working through it. But in the meantime, there's rumors going around that only eight of these kids are going to make the team. The guy that's a little bit weaker and notices it, his nervous system starts analyzing the brain and goes, shit, I'm probably that guy. And what happens, the threat level goes up. Crap, I'm not going to make my team. I'm going to maybe lose my scholarship, whatever it may be. And guess what? Now the, the barbell becomes a threat and the nervous system ramps up. And now we've got fancy names for it, central sensitization, allodynia, whatever. But absolutely, because the brain is appraising threat. Hey, by the way, the coach is spending a lot of time with those kids, but not me. You know, I hate to tell you, but the brain thinks very different than we do. We think in terms of tissues. And that's why it doesn't pain that makes many times you look at somebody like that doesn't make any sense for who you, who the hell are you? Our brain doesn't think that way. Whatever makes the most sense right now. And that's why we got to be very careful analyzing these. But what you just described a hundred percent makes total sense to me. Something else drives the system up and has nothing to do with how physically fit they are, how strong they are, how much muscle is on them, whatever. There's so many other things to determine a human being's pain experience that has nothing to do with the physical health of the tissues. Yeah, this this reminds me of one of my, I guess, first failures as a, a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, opportunity to work with one of the female teams at a school. And then I did my best to, I guess, put myself in their shoes and explain the purpose behind the movements we we're doing, the dead bugs, many resistant hamstrings. And they had never done those movements before, so they were very sore. And I guess they had uh, a different coach before, so they interpreted soreness, that pain, the delayed onset muscle soreness with injury. I didn't communicate it well enough that the expectation of, hey, you know, you're going to feel sore. That means you worked hard or painted a picture that it was not as bad as they made it out to be. But then, uh, yeah, consequences from that miscommunication. But still, I, I guess I should have laid that expectation down a little bit deeper for those girls you know the expectation was work hard but at the same time what comes from the hard work it's going to be a little pain let's dig in a little bit to pain relief right and I, you know i just think of let's go soreness as a potential threat and then that would affect range of motion right and then but you want to get into a range of motion for training or something so what do we see in the gym we see like some stretching either dynamic stretching and then rolling out like this manual therapy and well it, it triggers a pain response often right but afterwards we feel better like a sense of relief is what's the mechanism there doc yeah I mean, are we actually <laughs> healing pain what's the deal yeah good good question the answer is yes it's everything um, you know, for example, if I laid you down real quick and I cracked your spine, um, your brain produces endorphins and keflin serotonin, the happy chemicals that calms us down. What I think your audience needs to know today is our brain produces opioids 50 times stronger than what you can inject into a human body today in any emergency room in this country. The most powerful Walgreens on planet Earth sits between your ears. <laughs> it has to because as I'm sitting here today, there's a farmer in Iowa cutting his leg off as he's putting up a fence. 
in a split second, it figures out if I feel pain right now, I'm going to faint or fall over, bleed out, or be dead. So the brain opens up this faucet and Keflin's endorphin serotonin shuts it down. The guy puts a tourniquet on his, on his arm. He goes to his truck and he drives 20 miles to the emergency room. By the way, he stops and gets a cup of coffee on the way there. He goes to the ER and we ask him, what's your pain rating? And he says zero, right? A soldier right now today getting shot in Afghanistan or in, in Iraq, you know, not even aware of it, they come back. So understand that an area in the neuroscience we're very intrigued in is enhancing the endogenous mechanisms. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys a quick question, right? Why do runners run? And the answer is they're drug addicts. Mm -hmm. huh. If you think about it, your brain – when you do a six-mile run today, you produce six uh, – sorry, you produce 10 milligrams of morphine in your brain. If you break your arm right now and go to the ER, you're going to get two or three milligrams of morphine while we set your arm in the ER. And so if you talk about pain relief, when I manipulate you, there's an endogenous release, dry needling, um, 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 aerobic exercise, um, relaxation, meditation, yoga, mindfulness. There are so many things that can turn the brain on. And remember, all that happens when your knee starts screaming at the spinal cord, hey, danger, danger, here's a problem. Your brain says, shut up. I got it. The guy with the funny accent explained it. We're going to be okay. And that's why education, knowledge, all these things are so critical. Um, so there's, there's many reasons why things work. But we, there's a very interesting thing right now is looking at what the brain is doing in all these things. So I That's guess why manual therapy, by the way, is often it hurts so good, right? It hurts but feels good at the same time because yeah. you're releasing endogenous systems. Dry needling. When you needle somebody, I mean it, it, it hurts but it feels good at the same time because it gets this endogenous system up and running. So if there is this uh, kind of multi – it is and it isn't relationship between, let's say, pain and injury, which – I mean I'm trying to think of um, – you know, like an ankle sprain or I'm just trying to think you're, you're jammed up. You got a, a jammed up joint or something like that. And you want to get through it and you want to, let's say, either train or compete. And you take on you take to a specific therapy method, whether it is acupuncture uh, or cupping. cupping or manual therapy. I mean, it only works if it works. Like, right? I mean, you know, there's in, in uh, we got a buddy who's a PT, and, and even uh, Zanis, Dr. Matt Zanis, who's one of our coaches, uh, you know, it's like, well, we have these explanations for why it works. But what we're finding out, and I think with some of your research, is, well, no, that's not why it works, but if it works, it's working type deal. And it's kind of a slippery slope. Is, is Doc, is this the no nocebo? Placebo, no, the, nocebo? The placebo, nocebo, yeah. So placebo is a belief that something will work. And nocebo is the opposite when you think it won't work, right? But what you just mentioned is absolutely true. So I want people to understand placebo is synonymous with fake, right? One guy gets a real tablet. The other guy gets a fake tablet. And, and we have a name for that. It's called total bullshit, <laughs> all right? I want you to understand placebo is the most powerful treatment we have ever studied in the world of medicine. And we now have very good research to back this stuff up. The belief that something will work. And what does it do? It turns on the happy chemicals in your system. So I always tell the healthcare providers when a patient says with you, why wouldn't you even ask them that? What do you think will help your back? And if you say, no, it just feels like somebody needs to pop it. Why would I not consider that? We have studied this, and, and this idea that it's a fake thing is not, is not true. And it's, it's truly enhancing the endogenous systems, your beliefs, because what you believe drives your pain relief. 
And so, the, 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 yeah, it's placebo and it's real and we can measure it. We can scan your brain today and show it to you. It is absolutely mind boggling. Um, for example, we have placebo surgery studies. In orthopedic surgery, we have nine studies where somebody received a real orthopedic operation. The other nine, the other group received a fake operation. And guess what? The fake study, the fake operations are just as good. If you go into the OR believing the operation is going to work, we don't even have to do it. Now, no one get a lot of critic, um, criticism for it, but it's been published. We just published a paper on that on orthopedic surgery. So the reality is everybody needs to listen to what I just said and say, wow. There must be something there. And it's that belief. And so when you talk about recovery and healing, it is important. What do you believe in? So you, you went to, you talked about cupping, right? You talked about, you know, we can talk about kinesio tape. You can talk about all these things. But yes, what you believe is going to drive it. No doubt about it. And, and it's been shown over and over. The words we use to sell it makes a big difference. So what's the... Does one, should one or could one consider the difference between treatment and relief versus a cure or fixing? You know, I've got, I've always got this back that needs to be popped. Well, that's not ordinary. You, there's something you should be doing so that you don't need it to be popped for relief, right? Yeah, that's, that's I mean, you're talking almost about a behavioral issue more than anything else. I mean, I need us to understand today, pain is normal. Without it, you'd be dead. All right. So pain is part of the normal human condition. There is a con genetic condition called Mendelian disorder. It's genetic. When people are genetically set up where they cannot experience pain, uh, it's, there's about 12 people in the world that have it. They don't live very long. So it's one thing to have pain. So this brings us to the other thing. We cannot prevent pain. And you shouldn't prevent pain. Pain protects us. It tells us that the oven is hot. It tells us something sharp is bad. But we can prevent chronicity. We can prevent disability. Right. The, mo the, the holy grail of what we're talking about today is if you hurt yourself today, what do you do about it? One guy goes and lays on the couch and feels sorry for himself. The other guy goes, I'm going to just keep going. There's the holy grail. So the idea would be that we, 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 we want to teach people that pain is normal. There's a lot you can do for it. And the best is to keep moving. Movement is the biggest painkiller in the world. Fire none, no matter what we've studied out there. And so... I'm not answering your question probably directly, but um, the idea is very simply that pain is part of a normal condition. And what we do about it, I mean, okay, so you're, let, let's ask your audience this. Can you reflect for a second how you were brought up as a kid when it comes to pain? How many Hello Kitty Band-Aids did you get when you hurt your knee? How many SpongeBob Band-Aids? Or were you like me living on a farm in Africa where dad said loving things like suck it up, rub dirt on it, I'll give you a reason to cry. Right. So it's, it's almost it's there's a behavioral aspect, you know. So what do we tell our kids nowadays in a, in a baseball field? Suck it up, rub dirt on it, keep going. And there's actually really good evidence to show it works because it's the behavioral aspect and they move on. So I yeah, guess, I, yeah, seeing seeing kids falling down and just mm -hmm. ignoring them or clapping and cheering. like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Little Cashy, John's son, who's two years old, about right? to be about to be two. Uh, I mean, that kid's a bruiser running, you know, running into things, face planning. And, and we're, he's just surrounded by a bunch of, you know, knuckleheads like us who are like, you did it. Good job. He gets yeah. up, or get up. Did I do it? Little hustle. And then you see other kids do the same thing and it's, and it's the end of the world, you know? So, um, 
But I guess let's stick with movement. Yeah. So movement is, I, so I love that line. Yeah, realistic, and we, we've seen this realistic case of, you know, people are really embracing barbell training, things like heavy back squats as a, a mode for fitness, wellness, and longevity. And, um, you know, and it comes down to, we're going to back into essentially, it's not what you're doing necessarily as much as how you're doing it. And they'll come to us and they're like, I can't squat. I've got this terrible knee pain. We watch their pattern. Right. We say, hey, you know, well, you you are pitched a little far forward or hang on is one leg shorter than the other or uh, have you had an injury there before? Yeah, countless. You know, there's there's you go through that that decision matrix, that diagnostics, if you will. And by changing their pattern into what we you know, we would consider a posterior dominant where your knee is more supported structurally. Oh, my gosh. Knee pain goes away. By the way, my back pain went away. By the way, my ankle and feet, they feel fun. they feel great, you know? So it's coming into, is the correct, like you said, the it's not just movement, but correct movement, right? I mean, is that the way to say it? Or I mean, help me, yeah, I help me get better at what I'm trying to say. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, guys, I'm sorry. I, I, I was in that part of my life. I'm on the other side of the spectrum today. Um, I don't know. I, I don't the same thing. Like we say, there's no optimal posture. You know, posture and pain is not correlated. We have people with very beautiful mm. posture that want to shoot themselves. They have so much pain. And we have people with terrible posture and life is awesome. You know, we call them teenagers. <laughs> um, if you guys go on YouTube and you probably have done it, the most decorated distance runner in the history of mankind, Haile Gabri Selassie from Ethiopia. You know, he was running in the Berlin Marathon, four minutes and 44 seconds in a mile, breaking the world record, and his right foot is overpronating more than any of us have ever overpronated. There's growing evidence that it may not be that important. Um, you know, what is the optimal posture? What's the, and I would argue we're all different. And the good coach, the good trainer can look at it and adapt it. And what you just talked about, if a guy says, you know, when I squat this way, my knee hurts. By you spending time listening, making some adjustments, being the expert, maybe just enough. And I'm not saying it's not important. There no, I'm is with you. I'm with you. Yeah. But my problem is now we've developed a model that says this is perfect and anything beyond that is bad, which means you're going to hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. We, we know that's not true. I mean, come on. You, you guys go watch a marathon, right? Have you ever watched the runners at the back of a marathon? I mean, they got the most horrible mechanics you've ever seen in your life. You're, you're talking to them right and now. Look, <laughs> and then they look at their watch and they go, hey, I'm beating my best time by nine days, right? <laughs> they're, they're having the time of their life. Uh -huh. I'm going to argue something else for you today, and that is, yes, there's optimal movement. and But I, it's not yes or no. There's, there's kind of this, this area. Let's say it's, it's a little bit more of a gray area, but what I'm very intrigued in is what you think about your movement, what you think about your exercise. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you guys an example. They, they, and this may not really tie into your, your clients, but in Minneapolis, they did a study. They took hotel workers that clean your hotels, right? They make your bed, they vacuum the floors, whatever. And they put them in two groups. One group, they, to they told them, your activity you do every day, making your beds, vacuum the floors, meets a surgeon general's daily requirement for exercise. And they showed him when you push the vacuum, that's a, that's a lunge, that's a squat, right? When you bend down and make the bed, they basically showed him this activity means this, this means this. Four weeks later, 
the group that was told that didn't change one bit was statistically better for for decreased blood pressure, heart rate, body mass index, hip to waist ratio, etc. You guys have to understand, and you do, I'm sure you do, that exercise is a lot of it's in your mind. And even when it comes to proper lifting mechanics, I would be very intrigued what the person thinks about the lifting mechanics. And if they do accept there's a problem, and, and again, I'm not saying you guys shouldn't use your knowledge. You have experience, mm -hmm. and you can tell them, listen, if you don't get your butt past this area, guess what? You're going to be in better shape. Oh, great. Yeah, you're the expert, no doubt. But I would hate for people to pick up that there's, an, there's, a, there's a perfect and anything beyond that, you're in trouble. Because I think there's, there's leeway. We're, we're very different. And in the world of neuroscience, we call it plasticity. There is plasticity in the system. So, yeah, that's, I, I think it's also what you think about your lifting mechanics. Do you think you're doing good? And I think what we, you know, where we, where we fall, we do have a, a universal default we are trying to, trying to adhere to. We found it to be structurally just in testing the best way to go multi-direction from, and it looks just like a ready position, Doc. But, you know, as you get beyond the general ready athletic position, let's say, and we get into the mechanics of running a marathon or sprinting or being a pitcher. I guess you're right. You know, we, what we often say is over time, as athletes expose themselves to this task, the greater ones are going to figure out their way. And then next thing you know, they're going to have some coach trying to tinker with their, their <laughs> mechanics. And it, but you know what? And here's the thing is what I'm kind of picking up from you is that change could help them if they believed it would. But if it, they don't believe it and you as a coach haven't done the upfront legwork to get the belief system or, you know, in, interface and integrate with your athlete where they go, yeah, this coach is fucking dialed in. Uh, I am going to, uh, I don't know, Austin, what did they say? Adjust wrist or grip position on a baseball. And it, it does make me better. But if you don't have that belief, it doesn't necessarily. Right. And that's, it's, I guess that's fascinating. And it goes into what we were talking about today with Zach at lunch or uh, breakfast brunch is, um, you know, there's a psychological component to this thing that's as, as important as your technical knowledge of how the body works, right? If you can understand how the person works mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever, then you can, you can really start to make change, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be either or. Why don't we do both? Oh, sure. The best, the best athlete is the guy that mechanically is as sound as he can be. And you guys know it. There is an optimum. I and mean, if you, if your mechanics is way off, you're going to pay the price through injury dis, uh, over time, you know, those kind of things. But on the flip side, there's also – so there has to be – there's that little leeway. And I think that's where the good guys come in and figure that part out. So let me ask you this, Doc. What's on the opposite end of the spectrum from pain? Like – would the middle be comfort and then the other side is like, ooh, that feels good? What do you call that? Flow. Flow? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you call it the zone, you know, the flow, the whatever? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I think but for like, athletes, off, off, yeah. So there I am. Probably so the zone. Let me, let me take you. I'm, I'm going to get out of athletics real quick. And let me take you to, you know, sitting on the couch you know, popping in Netflix, get a bowl of popcorn. I'm going to watch uh, some the Fast and Furious series, all eight of them. And you're with your significant other, your sweetheart, you know, and they reach over and start scratching your neck or your back. I mean, your brain doesn't interpret that as pain. But it could. it could. Like you said, like, let's say you had a rough day. 
You're like, don't fucking touch me. <laughs> like, right, it's discomfort. But hopefully nine times out of ten, it's the opposite of pain, right? That comforting feeling yeah. and that sensation. And I guess that, that winds into mindset. And is there a way, I guess, you know, whether it's inoculation, I, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is th- there's clearly like the same stimulus can be seen as a threat or not, right? Yep. And, you know, maybe it's through movement or confidence or just, you know, whatever that X factor is that we can't necessarily measure. Um, how could you make something? Is it possible to make something that, you know, let's say squatting down deep hurts a knee or a hip to make it actually feel the opposite, that like that nice back scratch? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you if you take somebody that squats and they get some discomfort, but you coach them through it and they're lifting more and they're getting ready for competition and there's this whole rah, rah, rah thing. I mean, that's OK. Pain that is understood is not to be feared. But it, but and, this is, and, and there's no manual therapy done. There's no, no rolling no, out. There's no, no surgery. No. You can coach them through it. No doubt about it. And it's an encouragement to talking through the whole process where the brain goes, I got it. I'm doing good. I'm doing better. This guy's got my back. I'm going to do great in the next competition. This, I mean, this remember is all the a hip ploy. Can- I think this is all a ploy to get Ashley to scratch <laughs> Luke's back. That's what I'm hearing. No, you know what this is, man? Dr. Strange. Remember Dr. Strange? <laughs> the movie? Did you see that movie? Uh, On Netflix? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's the dude's name? Uh, well, Dr. Cumber, Strange. Cumberbot. Yeah. Smashes up his hands, can't heal him, and then he goes to uh, the guru, and she's like, yeah, you just got to believe. And then next yep. thing you know, bing, bang, boom, he's, he's traveling multiple dimensions. I mean, is that what we're getting into next here? We're working in virtual, virtual reality right now, and we're doing some cool stuff, so Wait, yes, what? sir. So you're using yes. VR to heal guys and gals? Yes, uh, absolutely. What? Yeah. If you take, for example, you know, if you look at your hand right now, you can see your hand, right? In a person with chronic pain, if their hand's been hurting for a long time, their hand looks 107% bigger. So what we do now, we put VR glasses on your head, and we, you look at a hand in the VR environment, or we use software that makes the hand look smaller and smaller and smaller, very incrementally. And as the hand gets smaller, your pain goes away. What? So, uh, and so it's, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. So, so yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, you know, it's, and it's all the brain stuff, so getting you, the brain on board. And you talked about the opposite, I guess, in sports performance, for example, the, uh, the, the hole on the, the putting green, if yep. you're less stressed, it looks bigger. <laughs> yes. It, yeah. Is that the yeah, same, the, same process going on in the brain? It, I, I would argue, yes. It's all about perception. Um, the the part of the golfer that is more in tune of his body, golf right now is great. The hole looks way bigger. The lower your handicap, by the way, the, the bigger the hole looks. Um, it's amazing, and it's a plasticity thing that we can retrain. And, I mean, if you look at Nike research now, the strobe glasses with wide receivers. I mean, you put strobe glasses on their head, they, they with the glasses open, close, open, close. It sharpens your reaction times because the brain fills in the gaps. And it sharpens your reactivity. There's, there's so many cool things about where we can and where we're going right now with all this um, brain remapping stuff in the pain world, but also potentially sports performance. I don't know what to believe anymore. The world is flat. <laughs> the flat earth guy. I knew it. I knew you were flat no, earth. No, no. The world is as round as it gets. <laughs> no, because, you know, I... From the top view. <laughs> So, you, so then what's, what's your advice? So you got a guy, I'm just a guy, you know, I'm, I'm here. I, I don't, I'm not a, 
high level performer. I play some beer league type stuff, doc, but you know, you, you twist an ankle, your foot starts to hurt, um, or your glute or hip, you know, you just this stuff that you would consider nagging and you wish it would go away. I mean, what, what, what does a guy do? You hear this and you're like, man, it's just, is it truly just mind over matter? Do I need to seek help from a pro? No, 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 no. What are the no, questions no, no. I got to ask? Yeah, I, th I think it's a combination of, you know, when you do get, when you play in the beer league and you roll your ankle, the first thing I would tell you is, you know, don't freak out. It's going to be okay. Tissues heal, by the way, without oh, yeah. therapy. Um, tissues are designed to heal beautifully. I mean, most of us, there's guys right now spraining their ankle at a tailgate going, I can have a Bud Light or a physical therapy, and they go, give me Bud a Bud Light. Light. Bud Light. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my point is, tissues heal. Utah. But guess what? When you become afraid, nervous, anxious, and oh, woe is me, my ankle hurts, guess what? Your pain experience goes up. So my first advice is calm down. It's going to be okay. Seek professional advice. Let them look at it. Don't let them over-medicalize it. Oh, it's the worst ankle I've ever seen. Sure. Right? And then movement is a big part of it. A little bit often, give it a little bit of time, and it'll recover. Tissues heal. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great thing. And, and if guess what? If, if tissue healing and pain reduction does not coincide – seek some help. If you sprain your ankle and three weeks later, your ankle is okay, but you still hurt, you'll get some help. I'm not, I mean, no means am I saying don't get help. Oh, sure. No, um, no, and I'm not saying that yeah. either. But, I, but it's also, if you have an injury, don't just sit there and think, ah, oh, it's going to get better by itself anyway. Get some help, check it out, and a good healthcare provider would go, let's give it a little bit of time, work on it, hear some stuff, and then come back and see how we do. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really a combination of both. It's, mind is important, but um, there is still the physicality. We're still physical human beings. Mm -hmm. And we need physicality to get us better. That's why movement is important. Blood flow, oxygen. When we pump blood and oxygen around nerves, they beautifully calm down. And I can do it through exercise, uh, muscle contraction, all that cool stuff that we all do here in a sports medicine, physical therapy, movement world, if you mm -hmm. will. So don't forget it. The brain has a body. Yeah. But also remember the body has a brain. Ooh. And we for too long have cut it either way. You're either it's in your head or it's your body. No, it's both. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know what I can't help but thinking is like, you know, remember those old commercials when the iPhone first came out? It's no. like, hey, uh, yeah, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. <laughs> now there's going to be a VR app where it's like, man, I mean, this chronic pain, you put it on, and you just look at your hands all day and they get smaller and smaller. And then next thing you know, you're fucking cured. It's going to be brilliant. I'm going to get that app. It's the future. So what else we, we got? Uh, well, we, uh, Doc, you had four, I guess, in our slides here, calming the brain. You had four big, big, big points. I was calling them our, our big four in our emails. And we had pain education, sleep hygiene, movement, aerobic exercise, and the last was goal setting. So I'd yep. love to kind of, I guess, get some, some backing towards the importance of purpose from your yep. perspective. So what, what happens is we have started looking at what kind of things in rehabilitation can turn the brain back on, get that happy chemicals, get what, what things can get the Walgreens going again, right? And we found 26 things. And then we looked at all the data, which one's stronger than the other, et cetera, because, you know, we don't have that much time in the clinic to do all that. So if you had to do only one thing, and so what you're looking at is the four big things and what we have figured out if these four, these four things are done and done quite well, you're going to get better. There's no doubt. We can then always add other pieces to it. So pain education, just meaning if you know what's going on with your body, you understand what's going on. 
hurt doesn't equal harm, sore but safe. I'm going to be okay. The guy with the funny accent said, I'm going to be okay. Movement. I told you, a, a six-mile run produces 10 milligrams of morphine. Movement is the most amazing thing at helping people. Sleep. The evidence is overwhelming on the efficacy of sleep on every disease state on the planet. And then the final one is you have to have goals in life. You know, a good example, unfortunately, in the medical world is, you know, a guy is on disability. He's exercising every day. He sleeps really good. He understands what's going on, but he's got no motivation. Why would I get off the couch? I'm getting my check every month. So for we have to dig. There's got to be a reason to get out of bed. And that's the same thing here. You've got to have goals in life. And so those four, easy answer today, we looked at the statistical analysis that if those four are done in any person during an injury, the chance of them getting success is extremely high. Um, so that's just really what the four came down to. There are other ones, obviously, nutrition, and it can go through coping skills, et cetera, et cetera. But that is how we, we came up. We didn't have a few beers one night and just said, these four sound real good. Um, <laughs> this has been proven to be very, very effective. Fascinating. Man, I just like – and pain is such an experience for people. You know, I'm not saying like I'm Mr. Tough Guy, but, you you know – you meet folks who's just like, oh, this kills. This is the worst pain I've ever experienced. And he's like, hey, really? And it's, you know, it's pretty interesting because, like you said, you get into that contact sport early in life. And, you know, I guess you just learn. It's, it, this is an experience just like the, sun, the sky is blue, you know, and I guess hot sauce is spicy and just becomes part of the culture. culture yeah, I guess culture is important with, with goals. I kind of I want to stay there for a second because – we have, we have athletes and they say, I want to do this. I want to do that. But then it's the next day they forget, or it's not that important. You know, they said it. So from your experience, what have you, I guess, talked with your clients about getting them to, to write that goal down, to solidify yeah. it as a true purpose versus just, uh, yeah, I, I, I want that. That's a good question. I mean, for us, it's, it's, it's really digging deep. You know, it, because uh, most people, we send them home, ask them, come back with a goal, and they get three or four or five, and you dig, and you dig. you got to find one, one that you can really attach to, preferably something that's measurable, that we can break down, right? My, my goal is to run a marathon. Okay, good. How do you run a marathon? But you got to be able to run a half marathon. How can you run a half marathon? you got to be able to run a 5K fun run. You know, you, so it's, I, I, it's, it's very hard, but it, it's as simple as I go to patients all the time and I say, if I can flip a switch behind your back, get rid of all your pain right now, just miraculously, boom, it's gone. What would you do again? You have to get behind the deepest desire because that's the thing that's going to get you out of bed. That's the thing that's going to get you at five o'clock in the morning to get up, go to the stoplight, meet your friend and go for your 10 mile run because you want to run the Boston Marathon. You got to dig, you got to dig, you got to dig. Um, it sounds easy. It's not that easy. But, um, you know, you just got to you got to get to that thing that makes him excited. I will argue if I told somebody and they say this is my goal and tomorrow they forgot about it. That's not their goal. You just have to keep digging. You got to be digging. You got to be digging. Um, I, I'm sorry. I don't give you a great answer to that text, but it's, it's, it's a little trickier than just, you know, you, there's got to be that thing that gets you out of bed, that thing that gets you off the couch. And it's usually not what the healthcare provider wants. It's yeah. what you want. Well, I guess, you know, what I heard there is find a way. And again, like upfront on all this stuff is the relationship part, like making the connection. Right. Yes. But you got, you know, once you identify that barrier, right. Force them to imagine that barrier barrier is gone 
and, and paint a vision, right? And, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be like me where I'd answer in 10 seconds. You'd be more like Tex, who's like the mosey, slow thinker. He's like, no, let no, me no, take no. a but month except to when it, on that. Except when it comes to purpose and goals, which is, but I guess, it's a, a challenge for me then to connect with mm-hmm. athletes that don't have that intrinsic motivation 3.0. Yeah. So but I guess what I, I think it's something that could probably use some thought, like take, take a few days yeah. to really think about it. If I could remove this pain, what would you be doing? Or maybe they can answer you. Yeah. Like you said, doc, like right there, they like, they know they yeah. want to go bow hunting again, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, all right. Well then yeah, let's work just, towards that. Yeah. It's just like peeling onions. I mean, so if I got, if, if I had asked an athlete, you know, what are your goals? And he's like, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. You know, I would just keep digging, you know, why do you play lacrosse? What about lacrosse makes you happy? Why do you play this and not football? And just keep going and going until you find that thing. And you can, I mean, that's what you do. You peel layers over mm-hmm. time. So I guess within this thing, I mean, this is such an opportunity because there's such an emotional uh, connection with pain that there's an opportunity for snake oil to be pushed left and right. What are some <laughs> of the biggest BS things that, you, you know, you think um, are, are plaguing... Uh, I don't know. Like there's different, there's really different verticals we, we work with, right? There's like the average person who really doesn't exercise. And then there's like our crew, which is, you know, their pain is a product to some of the training, you know? So, so they're being pushed all sorts of shit, like whether it is kinesio tape and like you said, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But like, what, what do you see out there today that you you would tell folks like maybe be cautious of? Yeah, you, uh, people won't like what I'm going to say, but I, I think it's 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 important for us to say today. You know, um, there's a lot of snake oil out there, and I don't want it, it. Yeah, and they come and go and come and go, but I think we have to we have to weigh risk and benefit. Okay. You know, if I give you a potion and you rub it on your knee for a month and you're like, oh shit, this doesn't work, that's fine. But if we start talking about potions and stuff that is has the potential for harm, um, I hate to say it, but the pharmaceutical side scares the hell out of me. Yeah, we're 100 and, 116 million, uh, sorry, 116 Americans a day are dying from prescription opioids. And th- we have to remember this stuff. So what bothers me is if we push a snake oil, but it has a significant opportunity to harm. I mean, if it's some, you know, Aunt Jemima's knee um, lotion, right? The bottle costs five bucks, rub it on your knee for a month, and it's not any better, that's fine. Tastes delicious. <laughs> but, you, but you're not going to get addicted to your, you know, you're yeah, not going to... Yeah potential you're gonna lick your knee for a month i get it <laughs> but, but but my so so i'm sorry I, I mean i wish i can tell you because they come and go and and we got to be careful because a lot of things work for different reasons they work we don't know why well we call it placebo whatever but i think that is where we have to re- have the risk benefit ratio we got to look at um and if we got to be careful the more the more um the, the more technical interventions, surgeries, drugs, whatever, we need to be careful because some of these are, we cannot come back to. Now, there's surgeries indicated for some people. Certain drugs are indicated, no doubt about it, and that's why we have professionals doing it, no doubt about it. But we got to be careful running to the bottle and running to the tablets because, I mean, you look at the data even for anti-inflammatories. You take a couple of ibuprofen after your workout, the risk for heart attack goes up exponentially. And yet, I know a lot of kids that pop tablets every day after the weight room we gotta be careful i'd rather have them do very benign things that yeah okay it may not work as well but the, the if the 
negative isn't that big. I, I, I hope I didn't make too many people upset, but we got to be careful because there's a big problem out there. And it starts in, you know, my son lifts weights and he comes home and starts popping ibuprofen. That could be the beginning of him getting into drugs. And, and I'm, I'm not bad, but I'm just saying he learns that when I hurt, I take a drug. Mm-hmm. This is that whole Pavlov thing again, sure, which concerns me because I wonder about it. Um, that's just something I think we can have a discussion about today. Yeah, and I think um, I think important. you're yeah you're speaking our language, and I, you know, because we got. We're, I guess a lot of our folks look for like alternative to that type, and as they should. And I guess you would encourage someone to like, why not look for an alternative? But even when, you know, I'll tell you right now, uh, I'm not a big like. I, I just have a hard time believing that kinesio tape works. And I know the guys that we, you know, that's just like one of those things where like, come on, really? Kinesio tape? But you will run into somebody who will swear by it, right? And I guess what I would acknowledge is that, well, fuck, then it worked. Good. Like, go for it. You know, and and like you said, in terms of risk versus reward, what are you going to be at? I mean, what's a roll of Kinesio tape cost? I don't even fucking know. But... I don't know. Yeah, so so here's the easy answer, right? We take a hundred kids today, athletes coming coming at our clinic or your gym, and we give all hundred of them kinesio tape. There will be a percentage of them walking out, going, "Oh my God, I'm so much better." Our job on the research side, we go figure out what made them better, and it would include things like the belief in it, how well you sold it to them. It doesn't mean kinesio tape doesn't work. By the way, I would argue different colors of kinesio tape may have different things, right? <laughs> Blue comes pain down, red ramps it up. Mm-hmm. Just as an example, but to sit here today and say kinesio tape doesn't work, that, that's it. I don't have, like those comments. Yeah. Because I, because I think that's what, what I think we should figure out. Why does this thing work for this subgroup of people? And I guess so yeah. A, yeah. kinesio tape doesn't work the way we think it works. Yeah, that's a good right? statement. So, like the Many way things, that yeah. you, you talk to a sales guy and they talk about, uh, I, 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 I'm not, I can't even remember. I'm just like gloss over. But what, it, what is the, what is the logic behind the kinesio tape text? Do you recall? Proprioceptive, uh, gliding, and and uh, increased circulation. And uh, a good buddy of ours, uh, Doctor Ant Lowe out of Sydney, he, he's like, hmm, sounds like a good story. You know, that's like his new thing. He's like, sounds like a good story. Yeah. Does it work? Maybe, yeah, but I don't know if that's the story, right? Yeah. Well, just be careful. There's many things in this world that works, and we don't know why it works. And that's our job on the scientific side to figure out. If you look at manual therapy as an example, it works for some people. Right. Why does it work? And right now we have probably about 25 different theories. Um, so so we got to be a little careful. There's still a group of people coming in getting manual therapy, walking on, going on better, as this kinesio tape. Now, I would argue if, if the kinesio tape people are listening to us today, they also have, have to bear the responsibility to go out and, and research it and fund that research. You know, when somebody – I get – every day I get to say, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I have to start at the research. I'm sorry. Um, that's why we do research is to prove yes or no. And I know it's not the all or nothing, but – you have to put your money where your mouth is and say, hey, let's try it. Let's study it. Let's check it. So, um, yeah. Um, I guess the quick Google search has found that kinesio tape, it will uh, prevent cramping, increase range of motion, and loosen your muscles. 
It doesn't say what it does. It doesn't say what it does on anything. <laughs> It'll make you look better. What It'll do you make say you, you do here? <laughs> but and I guess here, here's my thing, people, to our listeners, is because you know what, Doc? There, there is a guy or gal out there listening like, oh, these fucking out. The, the Kinesio tape works great. Like, if it does, it does. I, I don't know. About, more power to you. What, you know, the, whatever works for you, go for it. And I, I really like that risk versus reward. And, you know, there's probably for certain people is... You know, there's some other attributes in there to evaluate, like whether it's, I'm going to use the word cost, but I don't know that I mean it that way. But if it starts pulling away resources from where you could be investing in things like uh, better sleep or sleep aids, um, more nutritionist foods, uh, maybe that you have to reevaluate those parameters, right? You're spending all your money on Kinesio tape. We're bashing Kinesio tape. Sorry, people. Uh, or let's say solution A, that is high cost, minimal reward, and you could reallocate those resources into something that is pretty hard to argue with. Then to me, it sounds like you got to reevaluate. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I I don't know where the line is, though. That's 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 a tough yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. It's a case-by-case basis, isn't it? But yeah. what else do we have on the docket, Tex? Let me see. Doc, is there any, any articles, research, anything that you'd like to kind of push, promote that'll help, I guess, our, our listeners learn from this experience? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought of that one yet. But um, no, I mean, I, the, our world of neuroscience stuff is all out there. So there's stuff all over YouTube and people can look at the neuroscience of pain, etc. Um, you know, we wrote an article a little while back, um, um, Athletes and Low Back Pain, which goes through the neuroscience of pain in the brain, which I think would be kind of a neat little thing. Um, it's all, I, think, I think it's all available on Google. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really neat stuff out there. I, I don't, sorry, I don't have something right in front of me to think of. Um, yeah. Oh, no worries. I mean, let's say, so where would you point people if they wanted to Google up some of this stuff, right? I mean, it's a powerful yeah. tool. I think most of us know how to use it. If they wanted to find you, let's say, where, where should they start yeah. looking? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, our group, International Spine and Pain Institute, but I think the bigger scheme, the thing is we're working on pain neuroscience, pain neuroscience education. Um, we have dozens and dozens of papers we've published, a lot of them available, like I said. Um, but those would be places you probably can go look at. I know um, there's places like MedBridge that has videos that I go through pain stuff, and uh, so there's a lot of those kind of th- resources out there. And I, I found a few just in research, and, and I can I guess we can link those up in the show notes. There you go, people. Uh, I do have one go. question, yes. and I don't know if this is answerable, and that's a word. <laughs> All right. So what causes the transition from acute to chronic pain? And uh, where I'm going with this is something's bothering me today. Should I ignore it? How long should I worry about it? What should I do before, oh, crap, it's one year, I didn't do anything, and it, this is a lifetime injury? And just to be clear, we're asking for a friend. Right. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, the problem is. Um, not un- the good news is I cannot answer it. Perfect. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> a very big problem we're having right now is when does something become chronic? Mm-hmm. Um, chronic is different for different tissues. If you cut your 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 skin today, skin heals in days. If it's not better in three weeks, that's chronic for skin. If you damage a ligament, they re- they heal much slower, right? So it's a little bit tough on the time frame. In Europe, chronic pain is over three year, over three months. In America, it's six months. What about people that never had an injury but has pain? 
So there's no time frame. So technically, chronic pain would be just people that have been struggling with pain for quite a while, which now mm-hmm. what's quite a while, we can have a beer and discuss what that is. We talk about adaptive and maladaptive pain, though. Um, adaptive pain is pain that serves a primary purpose. You sprain your ankle. Um, the pain is there to tell you, take your weight off your ankle, go to the ER, get some help, get some crutches, go to the doctor. A, a maladaptive pain is pain that serves a secondary purpose. So um, it hurts, and, and because it hurts and it hurts all the time, my wife won't leave me. Um, if I get rid of my pain, I will, you know, there's consequences that do not, not serve the original functionality of it. I, I'm, I'm not giving you the answer because in the pain world, there's actually a big discussion right now. What is chronic pain? And it's pain that serves a secondary purpose. Your limp, if you keep limping, then people keep feeling sorry for you, although your ankle healed a year ago. It's kind of on that theme. So I'm sorry. There's no easy way here to put that. Um, Yeah, it's a tough one. (laughs) Well, yeah. Interesting. When are we going to know? When are you guys doing your PhD? So it's our job? Shit. Yes, sir. I'm done. I'm an old guy. I'm, I've done my job. Wow. It's great. Just, um, I mean, what are the big takeaways today, Tex? I mean, it's just. Well, I think the big four. Highlighting the big four. Yeah. And, and just really that last goal setting and, and just have, yes. you know, a community, culture, belief, purpose, you know, those, those things that, I, man. Who yeah, knew? just re- just remember, pain that is understood is not to be feared. Yeah, that's it. And in your environment, it would be fantastic. So you feel pain, so what? We're mm-hmm. good. Suck it up. Four more reps. Yeah. But if the minute you become afraid of it or you fear it, then you're going to have some problems. No doubt yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, Wow. Dr. Lau, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with our folks and chat with us. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I had an amazing time. And, yeah, we'll link up further, I guess, more in-depth, specific um, presentations that you got out there or interviews. Yeah. So we can point people in your direction and thanks for all you're doing for for the (laughs) the industry, man. It's awesome. Thank you so much. And Hey, have a great day. And until next time, people, this has been another episode of beautiful, sunny Austin, Texas. I mean, the weather here is amazing, Callie and scene. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. I recommend that you find Dr. Lowe's published research and upcoming seminar dates by going to www.ispinstitute.com. And if you're interested in what Austin, Texas's weather was like approximately one week ago, you don't have to look very far because uh, apparently we're doing that now on the podcast as well. Until next time, bye!